0: As you're grabbing your seat, let me invite you to pick up your Bibles too and turn with me to Acts chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning. Acts 18 verses 1 through uh, 17. I'd also like to invite you back um, to service next week for our annual missions service here at, at FAC Uh, We're going to have the privilege of being joined by George and Doris Nuss, who serve in Guinea, West Africa with the uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance. They're going to share about their ministry and all that God is doing there. And and I think you'll be blessed to to hear what God is doing around the world um, through the CMA. Um, This morning, though, let's turn to to God's word, uh, Acts 18, verses uh, 1 through 17. Once more, I'll read it and then I will pray and we'll begin. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have re- reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize that just as salvation is through faith, our own spiritual growth is also by faith in the Christian life. As we come to your word this morning, let us not treat this time studying as something we do merely to gain your favor. We we know that uh, Jesus, your son, has earned us your favor on our behalf. And so, Father, as we study your word, let it be an expression of our faith. Let our attitudes be such that we are needy and that you alone can satisfy our needs As we come to this book, your living word, would we come hungry for the fulfillment and satisfaction that you provide. In your precious son, Jesus's name we pray. Amen. The road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone and I must follow if I can pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where path and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. This is a poem from Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, um, that Frodo the Hobbit recites uh, to his friends as he's about to step over the border of the Shire, which has served as his home his entire life. In the last month, I've actually began reading Through the Lord of the Rings, uh, the the epic fantasy novel. The the book tells the story of this character named Frodo who has been tasked with journeying across Middle Earth to destroy a ring of power in the fires of the land uh, called Mordor. The journey is over 1,800 miles and takes them roughly six months to complete uh, in its entirety. What Frodo doesn't know as he recites the poem at the beginning, though, is just how weary the journey will be. As you read, you find that there will be sleepless nights. There will be days without food. There will be constant fleet from the enemy. And there will even be permanent wounds and losses that Frodo will have to endure. And as I've read through this story, which really depicts just the ultimate picture of weariness, I couldn't help but think about the Apostle Paul and his own journey of weariness that we've actually been walking through together. The the picture of weariness that I've read in the Lord of the Rings is actually an accurate depiction of the condition of Paul as he arrives in Corinth at this point in Acts. As he comes into the city of Corinth, he is just burnt out. He is at the end of his rope. We know this because later on in life, Paul will write a, a letter to the church in Corinth and he will explain what his condition is when he first arrived. This comes from 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 through 3, Paul addresses the Corinthian church. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. From this, we know that Paul arrives in Corinth weak, both physically and emotionally. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us because we've been tracking Paul's journey and we know what he's been through. But for our purposes this morning, let's give a a quick recap. I actually have an updated map uh, for you uh, that will show us his journey so far, but I would like to backtrack a little bit. The, the, the map shows Paul's secondary, second missionary journey. And I want to remind you what the last few months or so have looked like for Paul. Right? What did Paul experience over the course of his last few stops? Right there in the northwest corner of the map, right, we, we see how Paul bounced around Asia Minor there rather directionless. And then in Troas uh, is where Paul receives a vision there on the northwest side of Asia. God uses this vision to direct Paul and his team into the region of uh, Macedonia, which was further north and further west. And so they, they traveled to Philippi first. And in Philippi, if you remember, they were beaten with rods, and they were thrown in prison without a genuine trial. And then when they're released from prison the next day, they then travel to Thessalonica. And it's in Thessalonica that a mob forms, and they are hostile. They have hostile intent against Paul. They seek to harm him. Now, they don't find him in Thessalonica, but he does have to flee to Berea in the middle of the night because people are out to get him. And then in Berea, his third stop in this area, it seems like things are finally going his way. Right? He has a receptive audience. They want to hear uh, about the gospel and examine the scriptures. But then the mob that was in Thessalonica catches wind that Paul's in Berea. And so they travel to Berea once they find out that he was there. And they agitate and stir up the crowds against him once more. And this once again forces Paul to flee immediately. And then when he comes to Athens, while he doesn't experience any kind of physical hostility that we know of, uh, he does experience intellectual hostility. Many people poked fun at him, mocked him, sneered at him, called him names. He's been on the run for a very long time. Consider the cumulative effect of this journey as a whole. Right? Despite the divine call to Macedonia, he had been driven out of all four Macedonian cities in which he ministered. Of course, with one discouraging event after another, Paul arrives in Corinth just running on fumes. The tank is empty. We know that he was weak because he told them that he was weak, but we've also seen it with our very eyes as we've read through this journey. And not only was he weak, we also know that he's alone. He arrives in Corinth alone. This, uh, through this journey, Paul has been traveling with Silas and Timothy. They are close ministry partners. They are dear friends of Paul. But back in Acts 17, we actually find that Silas and Timothy remained in Berea as Paul flees to Athens. And so Paul is without his support system. He's without his partners in ministry here in Corinth. Paul is weak. Paul is alone. And finally, from our passage, we actually learn that Paul is also probably without resources. He's poor. He's run out of money. And we know this because in verses 3 and 4, we find that Paul having experience in tent making, or in other words, leather work, possibly. uh, He gets connected with other tent makers, and he begins to work with them. And in verse 4, we see that he reasons in the synagogue. Notice when he reasons in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day. However, back in Acts or Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, we actually read that he was ministering in public every single day in the marketplace, sharing the gospel, not just on the Sabbath. There seems to be a different pattern of work here. There's a very high probability here uh, from both what comes before this passage and what comes after these opening verses that Paul comes to Corinth having run out of money. He's out of support. So having experience in tent making, he uh, being gifted in that trade, he goes to find work, and then he is able to preach on the weekends in the local synagogue. And so once again, consider the emotional and physical state of Paul right now. He is weak. He is alone. He is out of money. Those are some pretty miserable circumstances that would take a toll on anyone. Some people, as they read Scripture, kind of put Paul on this sort of pedestal as if he is superhuman. But we must remember that while his work was nothing short of extraordinary, he was still human, just like you and I. He was limited by his humanity, just like you and I. And don't think for a second that this man did not wrestle with the same thoughts that you and I have when we're downtrodden. Thoughts of despair. Thoughts of just giving up. Just want to call it quits, I'm done. Perhaps you can relate to Paul after this past year. This past week marks a year since the lockdown occurred and the pandemic hit. And for you, the tank is empty. Maybe you've lost your job. And you're unsure where the next paycheck is coming from. Maybe you're just at the end of the rope. And tears flow daily. If that's you, let me encourage you to not lose hope. Because we have a God who is mindful of us. And who cares? In God's providence, encouragement, support, and rejuvenation come for Paul at just the right time. In this passage that we read, we actually find uh, encouragement for Paul in three separate areas. I'll give them to you up front. In in verses 1 through 5, Paul receives encouragement from um, supporters In verses 6 through 8, Paul receives encouragement from successes. And then finally, and most prominently in verses 9 through 17, he receives encouragement from his Savior, from supporters, from successes, from his Savior. Let's go ahead and walk through those together. First, Paul receives encouragement in the form of supporters, both, if you will, new and old in verses 1 through 5. Right As, as Paul uh, seeks out work, he comes across fellow uh, tent makers right, named Aquila and Priscilla. And Luke, who wrote Acts, actually provides a little bit of a backstory for this couple. They were recently displaced from Italy when the o- Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jewish population from Rome. This actually helps us date the passage because we have sources uh, that reference this particular decree. This particular decree was issued in 49 A.D. And Suetonius, who was a first century Roman historian, referenced this decree in some of his writings in regards to the imperial edict. Suetonius wrote this, he said that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Now the title Crestus is actually a Latin variant for Christ. It's very possible that this historian is actually talking about Jesus. Jesus. If that's so, what's happening here, that means that the Jewish community in Rome at this time was divided over the claims of Jesus, and the division was so bad that Claudius, the emperor of the Roman Empire, just kicks all the Jews out of Rome. He says, go take your fight on other people's turfs. You're not allowed here anymore. And then two of them, out of an estimated 50,000 Jews, were Aquila and Priscilla. Now, you got to wonder where they're coming from. This is actually a pretty uh, miserable circumstance as well. Uh, think about what they've just happened to them. They've been uprooted. Paul might be thinking, well, if, if we're all miserable, let's at least just be miserable together. <laughs> right? it's, it's much better to be miserable together than miserable and alone. And because Paul works with them and even lives with them, many biblical scholars assume that they were already believers. We find out that they go on to be very strong ministry partners with Paul, but there's a chance that they were believers even before they came into Corinth. And what started as a common interest in gifting and tent making, Paul soon finds out that they share a much greater bond in Christ. Right? But Paul tries, I bet, evangelizes them only for them to say, yeah, we know who Jesus is, and we actually believe in Jesus. Imagine the warmth that comes over Paul. Right? Paul comes into Corinth, a city that's actually known for its oppressive sexual immorality. His tank is empty, and he's all alone. And at just the right time in God's providence, Paul receives a breath of fresh air from these new friends. There are few things that encourage the lonely traveler as much as welcoming them into a loving and safe Christian home. To meet a believer in the secular world out of nowhere is like taking that refreshing drink of water when your throat is just dry and scratchy and arid. Paul receives encouragement from these supporters, these new ones, but it doesn't stop there because by verse 5, Silas and Timothy, Paul's old friends, finally catch up with him. He's reunited with his team, and not only that, they most likely come bearing gifts from the church in Thessalonica that Silas and Timothy visited after Paul's departure in Berea. We can assume this in verse 5, We can assume this because in verse 5, it isn't until Silas and Timothy arrive that Paul is occupied with the word. There's a a change of pattern, if you will, in Paul's ministry. That word occupied basically means that Paul is engrossed in preaching the word. He's completely absorbed in preaching the gospel now. This is a different pattern from before. Before, uh, he, he, when, he, when he arrives, he only preaches on the Sabbath day. And he makes tents the rest of the week, right? Now, he is able to devote himself fully and exclusively to preaching. Now his life is occupied with it, and it has his full attention. It certainly seems as though there has been a shift. Certain needs were met when Silas and Timothy arrived. And so here we are, and Paul is no longer alone. And he's no longer de- de- devoid of support. You have no idea the importance of friendship and support in gospel work. There is great encouragement to be found in friendship and in support. Moving forward, Paul finds encouragement not only from supporters, but also from some ministry successes. In verses 6 through 8, we read that Paul goes and testifies to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Savior. And that word testify is a very strong word. It could actually also be translated as to warn, right? Paul is warning them. The commentators say that Paul is making a serious declaration about the knowledge that he has of Christ. He's warning them of what will happen to them if they don't turn to Jesus. Now, of course, they count this as offensive, so they revile him, and they begin to abuse Paul. And we get a glimpse of how Paul reacts. He he, he bites back, so to speak, and warns them even further. But he, we, we read that he shook his garments out and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. The shaking out of clothes, it's a symbolic gesture. Through this action, Paul is saying, I have done all that can be done. And I am no longer responsible for you. I've done everything I can. To tell you about Jesus and to warn you about what's to come of those who do not follow him. And you refuse to listen. And so I am no longer responsible. In the same way, when he says that the blood of their is on their own heads, it's, it's similar. We actually get this picture elsewhere in scripture in the book of Ezekiel. In that passage, God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and presents him as a watchman at the city gates who must warn those within the city of impending doom and danger. Listen to how God instructs the prophet. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Basically, God is saying the watchman was responsible and he failed in his duties. Paul says, I've done my job as the watchman. I've warned you about the coming sword. Your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And when that day comes, you won't be able to blame me for my irresponsibility. And then he says, I have been released from my obligation, my spiritual obligation to preach to you. I have given you a fair chance. Whatever comes to you is not my fault. This really shows us how evangelism is a wonderful privilege as believers, but that we are also under a weighty obligation to tell people about Jesus, to warn them of what's to come. This is serious business. We're not playing games here. Because there are literally souls on the line. But as a reminder from last week, we are not responsible for their response. We are merely responsible for telling. In some instances, if someone rejects the message enough, We are actually released from such obligation, which is what happens to Paul. Paul says, I've been released. Now it's important to notice that while Paul is released from preaching the gospel to this particular Jewish population, he is not released from preaching the gospel altogether. He is merely released from the obligation of one group And he is now under obligation to another group. You see, our audience may change, but we are always under obligation to some capacity to tell people about Jesus. Paul says, hey, if you guys won't listen to me, I'm going to go find somebody who will. I'm turning to the Gentiles. And he didn't have to go far. He literally walks right next door to the synagogue. And he starts preaching to the neighbors. When one door closes, God now has opened another door for Paul that happens to be the next door neighbor. And from there, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, the very synagogue that just kicked Paul out, actually comes to know Christ. There seems to be some vindication here for Paul. Think about it. He has left the synagogue assuming that there was no fruit to be had there, but the very leader of the synagogue himself turns to Jesus. This shows us that we never know the types of seeds that are planted when we share Jesus. Even in the areas where there seems to be no fruit, the Holy Spirit can grow fruit. The Holy Spirit can take what, perceive, what we perceive to be nothing, and he can bear fruit from it as he actively works. And from this event opens up the floodgates of sorts in this area for Paul. Because not only was Crispus brought to Christ and, 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 and Titius, the household, the, the, the owner of the house, but Crispus's entire family. And then we're told that many Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. There is a significant windfall of the spirit here uh, in this ministry as Paul endures. You look at that and say, Paul, this must have been an encouragement for Paul to see that his work was not in vain, to see such ministry a success. However, as we keep reading, we see that there's still need for more encouragement. Right Paul's tank isn't quite full yet. And so finally he receives encouragement most importantly and prominently from his savior. The text says that the Lord came to Paul in a vision one night. This is Jesus, Jesus himself intervenes to spur Paul on, and we know that there's further uh, encouragement required because of the message that Jesus shares. He tells Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. This gives us a hint into the condition of Paul. If Jesus said, do not be afraid, and Paul wasn't afraid, it wouldn't make much sense. Right? If Paul wasn't feeling the pressure to, to, to stop speaking, if he was feeling tempted to be silent, Jesus would have never said that. Because the conversation would have gone something like this: Paul, don't be afraid. I'm not. <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? No, no, Paul is drained. He is afraid. He is tempted to be silent. This message alone shows that there is still some fear that resides in Paul's heart. And we may read this and wonder, why is this so? Why is Paul still afraid? He just notched a huge tally in the wind column by bringing a bunch of people to Jesus. What is there to fear? you think he'd be riding high at this point. Paul's afraid probably because he sees history repeating itself all over again. He, he's looking at the situation and saying, I've seen this episode before. I know, I know how this one ends. In every other city, as Paul experienced some sort of ministry success, as souls were won over to Jesus There were always others who became hostile and either sought to harm him or they ran him out of town. And so, of course, Paul is fearful of what's to come. He has no reason to believe at this point that it will be any different. Yet Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid, don't stop preaching. And then he provides him two promises. First, Paul, I am with you. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. And second, Paul, don't be afraid because I promise you that no one will attack you to harm you in this city. First, Paul has an advocate in Christ, one whose presence is assured and one who has promised that no harm will come to him. Paul at this moment would have been tempted to flee as he perhaps sees the hostility bubbling up as more and more people come to Christ. But Jesus tells him not to and then encourages him to to this end for, for a reason. Jesus does not want Paul to leave Corinth yet. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. This is a direct reference to what we would call God's elect. Jesus tells Paul, there are people here in this city that are mine. They belong to me. I have elected them, but they need to hear about me first. And you are the one that is going to go and tell them about me. In other words, Jesus is saying, Paul, don't leave yet because there's more work to be done. I know that it's burdensome. And I know that you are weary and I know that you are afraid, but there are lost souls who need to hear about me. You will bear more fruit here, Paul. Paul, you are a puzzle piece in my sovereign masterpiece. You are here to play a part. And so please don't be silent. You don't have to be afraid because I am here at your side. I am here. In your midst. Oftentimes, my children, they're young. They will ask my wife or I to come and lay with them while they fall asleep. They will will say, Daddy, I'm I'm scared. Can Can you just come and lay by my side while I fall asleep? And yes, they're scared. And yes, they're weary of the dark. But if one of us are by their side, they know. Just our sheer presence allows them to slip into the greatest rest. In the same way, Jesus promises Paul that he is present. Paul, I am here. Do you feel me? I will hold your hand, and my very presence will bring comfort. You will enter rest. I'm here for you. And Paul, not only that, you will not be harmed in Corinth. You will not be physically hurt here. For someone who has recently been put through the ringer, this is a lofty promise. But Jesus comes through. Immediately following this encouragement from Jesus, Luke gives this strange account of something that happened later on in Paul's time in, in Corinth. And it's somewhat of a familiar scene to us, right? As the Jewish community seizes Paul and, br- and brings him before the authorities. Once again, we've seen this episode. We know what's coming for Paul. Typically when this happened, it didn't end well for Paul. And if you put two and two together, as you read through the development of this story at the beginning, you're thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just promise Paul that no harm would come to him? That he was with him? But then you keep reading down the page and the story takes a surprising turn. Typically, when Paul was brought before authorities, he was called to give on a, a, a defense of some sort, to speak to his actions. And in verse 14, in our passage, Paul goes to open his mouth. He begins to speak. And Gallio, the proconsul, speaks up before Paul even gets a word out. And then in a shocking turn of events, Gallio dismisses the case. He doesn't think Paul has done anything wrong. And he tells the Jewish population, go figure it out for yourself, right? You guys are on your own to work this one out. Shocking. And then something really bizarre happens, a twist ending, if you will. We're told in verse 17 that they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Every interpreter that I read is vastly confused by this. Because we don't really know who Sosthenes is, other than the fact that he's Jewish, that he's a Jewish leader. And we actually don't even know who's beating him. There's a lot of different theories, but but none are certain. So why on earth is this detail included? Luke includes this detail to show how Jesus came through on his promise. It's remarkable that we're in a hostile environment. The tensions are high. Somebody gets a beat down and it's not Paul. What a turn of events. Because he was typically the punching bag in these situations, but not this time. And if you think about the passage, it very easily could have been Paul, but it wasn't. Right? It's not because Gallio is some shining model of justice. Right? It may appear like that at first glance, that Gallio is sticking up for Paul, and sticking up for the Christian way, and sticking up for justice. But you see that he turns a blind eye to this beatdown. Gallio, it appears, just wants to avoid conflict. He doesn't want to get in the middle of of the Jews and Paul, and he refuses to stand in the middle of this attack on Soslin. So he he just kind of turns the blind eye. He puts it back on them. So think about it like this. If the Jewish people wanted badly enough to hurt Paul, if they were impassioned enough, they had a chance to attack Paul, and Gallio would have done nothing. And so if it wasn't Gallio that saved Paul, who was it? Why wasn't it Paul who was beat? We know the reason. Because Jesus had promised him that no harm would befall him in Corinth. Jesus had a promise to uphold. That's what this last scene is showing. Is that Jesus always comes through on his promises, even when it appears that there's no hope? And if Jesus always comes through on his promises, we can trust him in our very lives every single day. And most importantly, we can trust him for our salvation. When all is said and done, and God must punish sin on that last day. Jesus has promised that if we rest in him and come to him and trust in his sacrifice for us, that no harm will come to us on judgment day. The blood of our sins, our own blood, will not be on our own heads come judgment day because it was on Jesus. It was on his head. He took it on himself. Now, we don't have a specific promise like Paul did that that we will experience no harm in this life or in this city, but we do have a promise from him that he is with us until the end of the age. And so looking down the road, you will see that it is long, and that it's arduous, and the road goes on and on. You consider the path of the believer and say to yourself, that is a lot of pain, and that is a lot of suffering. But then we can rest easy, knowing that we do not walk the path alone. We walk the path with Jesus who has already walked the path of suffering at the cross. And we now rest in his glorified presence. Don't give up. Do not lose heart. There is more work to be done. Paul would go on to stay in Corinth for a year and a half, unscathed. And then he gets to leave on his own terms how wonderful. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that your son is with us by the power of your spirit. Lord, we intend for you to um, uphold that promise. There are many in this room that may feel uh, beat down and out of gas. And so I would ask, Father, that while Jesus is present, we, we know in our minds that he is present. Sometimes our hearts don't feel that way. And so, Father, by the power of your Spirit, would his presence be made known? Would we feel the presence of Christ as we wake up on Monday morning and continue on this long road once more? We thank you for your word and your promises and your goodness to us, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen.